0: I had gone through this
1: total just excavation of anything my inner critic wanted to say while I was going up this climb because it was one of the hardest climbs on the island. As I was doing it, I was feeling a lot of physical resistance, but more than that, a lot of emotional resistance. So all of those like nasty negative things that your inner critic says, is just like on loop all the time. I actually Mm -hmm. like slowed down didn't take those as truth, examined them, released them, and then like hyped myself back up to fully eradicate those things from my inner dialogue. And by the time that I got to the top of that really high climb where I'm going through this process, I felt like an astronaut getting ready to blast off in outer space. Like I
0: felt on fire. This is your Kick-Ass Life podcast, episode number 310 with guest Sydney Williams.
2: This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen,
3: a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass.
0: And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy,
3: Andrea Owen.
0: Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here with me this week. If you missed last week's episode, I'm gonna highly encourage you to go over and check it out. It was all about the decade coming to an end. I asked a lot of powerful questions on that episode and there is also a free PDF for those of you who like to dig a little bit deeper, who like to spend some time digging into these questions and journal them out or even if you just want to think about them, you have them at your fingertips. So that was episode 309. And next week... We're going to be looking ahead at the decade coming up. Yes, the year coming up, but the entire decade as well. I'm excited to bring you that episode coming up. This week, I have such a beautiful conversation with my friend, Sydney Williams, and just a heads up, we had a little bit of technical difficulties and the audio isn't as amazing as I would like it to be, but it is definitely good enough. And before we jump in, to that, I wanted to let you know how important it is that we get ratings and reviews about the podcast wherever you consume your podcasts, whether it is Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I don't even – there's so many now. There's so many platforms out there, which is great because it's so much more access to getting all of your favorite shows. And ratings and reviews are kind of like payment, if you will, (laughs) For these podcasts, it matters so much to the show. So if you haven't done so already, please, please, please take a moment to go ahead and do that. And thank you to all of you that have. We read every single review. So thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time and the energy to do that. All right, you're gonna hear Sydney's story, which is an incredible one in just a minute here. But let me tell you a little bit About her. When former collegiate athlete and competitive skydiver Sydney Williams unexpectedly found herself on the receiving end of a type 2 diabetes diagnosis while grappling with unresolved trauma from a decades old sexual assault, she set out on a mission turn her pain into power. Two hikes across Catalina Island and 80 miles later, she founded Hiking My Feelings to help others tap into the mind body connection and healing power of nature that helped kick her self limiting beliefs and disease into remission. Today, she travels across the country, empowering others to summit their personal mountains on their way to becoming well-beings. So without further ado, here is Sydney. Sydney Williams, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, of course, I have to start by telling the story of how we met. I would hope so. (laughs) I would would hope because it's a fascinating and riveting story that began on Twitter and – it's really not that fascinating and riveting, but it, it's sweet, I think, because I was 37-ish weeks pregnant with my daughter. Jason, my husband, and I had been going round and around about what to name her. We we had an actually really easy time deciding on our son's name, Colton. This one, it was it was a <laughs> slug fest. <laughs> we were not backing down from the names that we liked. And we both liked the name Sydney, and there was a couple that we both kind of liked also. And then we had a mutual friend on Twitter, and I saw that my friend Jenny Blake was friends with a young woman named Sydney Owen. And obviously, our last name is Owen. And so I tweeted you, and I was like, hey, how do you like, how'd you like growing up with the name Sydney Owen? And you said, uh, it's pretty awesome, no complaints. <laughs> <laughs> you said, it's the best name ever. That's what you said. Right. <laughs> So I told my husband, I said, well, a Sydney Owen said that it's the best name ever. So that's really just, you know, sealed the deal. And now we have a Sydney Owen and we just find it. We just are tickled by it. But you're not Sydney Owen anymore. No, I am officially Sydney Williams and have been for a hot minute. (laughs) For a hot minute. Yes. So anyway, that's how we met. It's kind of a random story. But I had the pleasure of going to one of your speaking events here in Greensboro, North Carolina, because you were on tour telling your story. And it is such a great story. And it's it's sort of been the theme over a, a handful of episodes that I've had over the last few months. And my friend, Nicole Whiting was on and she's an, an ultra marathoner and did a hundred mile run and definitely <laughs> is using movement to heal her trauma. And you have a very similar story. So let's start there. What led you to the Trans Catalina Trail the first time? And tell us where that is and, and like all of the kind of logistics of it.
1: The Trans-Catalina Trail is a 38.5 mile trail that goes from tip to tip of Catalina Island, which is off the coast of Los Angeles, California. And to get folks that are listening into the mindset that I was in before we started doing that the first time, the two years leading up to that trail were some of the hardest years I've ever survived. So I'm just going to kind of quickly run through some of the stuff that happened in the years leading up to that, and then we can go from there. So...
0: Yeah. Cause you weren't, I just want to like, stop you for saying second. you weren't somebody who decided like from a, an early age that you wanted to be a hiker or had this like on your vision no, board or I didn't anything really like that. I didn't really
1: learn to love hiking until I moved to Southern California in 2011. So this definitely wasn't like a childhood dream of mine, not by any stretch.
0: Okay. Okay. So you had some hard stuff that yeah. happened and then that's what pushed you into doing it. So my friend okay. Chris who was
1: that? a U.S. army veteran, um, took his own life at the beginning of 2014. So that's how the year started. And later that summer, My uncle, Mike, who had previously beaten brain cancer, had the tumors come back and take his life. And around the same time that that happened, I was training for the national skydiving competition and my teammate sustained what we thought would be a season ending injury. And we didn't have enough time to get anybody else trained up. So we figured that was it for the competitive season for that year. So we just pushed pause on competing with the team that year. And my friend, Adam, who was basically like the little brother I never had. Um, if I had kids, I would want them to grow up to be like him. He went to Idaho for a base jumping trip and didn't come home. He died on a base jump. Oh my God. Kicking my ass. So 2014 yeah. And around ass. the same time that I was figuring out Adam's memorial, uh, plans, my teammate who we thought was injured, wanted to go to nationals. So then I had to choose between a funeral and nationals. I chose the funeral, went and did all that. And once I got home from the funeral, I found out that my boss, who was also my skydiving coach my mentor in this sport and the reason that I moved from Chicago to Southern California was to train at his facility to be a world champion skydiver someday. I found out when I got home from Adam's funeral that that man was convicted of raping his 14-year-old niece. Yeah, so at the end of 2014, I left my dream job, which was working at his facility as the director of PR events and marketing at that skydiving center. I walked away from all my sponsorships as a skydiver athlete and I walked away from the sport altogether. I retired that year.
0: which. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to de- derail the conversation, but like I was, when you came to my house, because both you and your husband were there and you're, that's how you met is skydiving. I didn't even realize there's a whole world of professional skydiving, like championships. Like you guys go to competitions and this is legit. That blew my mind. So it's just one of those things like, oh, there's a profession where you can do that. So, so, so exciting and interesting. I'll have to have you back <laughs> on so you talk all about that. <laughs> but sadly, that kind of was that like the end of your career, or, or um, what so it was the end of my career like? as
1: far as working in the sport for another facility or manufacturer or skydiving center goes. But after in 2015, I Got launched it. my own skydiving events company, and I did a handful of events. And the last one I did was Adam's Memorial Skydive, and at that point, I was like, "Yep, totally done with the sport. Mm-hmm. I just released my friend's ashes over this drop zone. I'm done. See you later."
0: Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So what did you just wake up one morning and decide like, I'm going to do this? Yeah. Well, ass hike? we had been How deciding,
1: like my husband grew up in New Hampshire. He's been outdoorsy his whole life. We had done some backpacking or we had done some uh, day hikes and some camping trips, like, you know, sleeping in a tent on the ground kind of thing. And I liked both of those. So when I had the opportunity at the end of 2016 to have a whole extra week off work and not have to worry about being available for clients or anything else like that, knowing I could be completely disconnected, my husband was like, Hey, why don't we try backpacking? And I was like, Okay, yeah, sure. Sounds great. And that's how we found the Trans Catalina Trail.
0: Okay. And I was at your event where you told this whole story. And I one of the most hilarious parts about it is that you went in. So I think the only thing that I've done even remotely close to that is I did, you know, the the fundraising thing where people did like the 60 mile walk for breast cancer over three days. Like I trained like gangbusters for that. And, and you, um, how was your training leading Uh, up to that? There wasn't any, (laughs) Like I, <laughs> I, I love though, like the delusional confidence that you have, you're like, yeah, I'm just going like, to go on this 38 mile well, hike. It's like, <laughs> and it's funny because I, I was in
1: the worst shape of my life. Like in the, in the lead up to that trip, like I had to go and get all the equipment because I had never been before. And I went to go get like the technical hiking clothes so I could look super professional on the trail. Which right. always makes like, like you, you feel right ready, here right? It's a hundred percent. It's not just a mental thing. Like it legit, it physically makes you feel good. So, but like the store that I was shopping at, I bought the biggest sizes that they had because they did not sell any clothes bigger than that. And I was like a little sausage squeezing into my casing Mm -hmm. to go get on this trail. Like I was overweight, I was out of shape. I had just survived like two of the hardest years of my life. And I essentially just like rolled off the couch and onto the trail. Again, I love the term delusional
0: confidence. Oh my God, what a perfect descriptor
1: for my life at that time. (laughs) It's like I got this.
0: (laughs) I've been using that term because that's I had that kind of confidence when I first started my business. So I very much know that place where yeah. you're like, I don't know.
3: It's just going to work.
0: <laughs> oh, so good. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you, and I know like the whole story is, is much longer, but like you had, you had a moment on that trail. You yeah. So the first it, time it we went a,
1: like. across the island, it was the hardest thing I've ever done physically. And like to kind of set that up. So there's a little bit of context for that. Like I was a gymnast growing up. I did traveling competitive cheerleading. I was a division one athlete on the women's rowing team at the university of Kansas. I was a competitive skydiver for four years. So like I've done hard things physically, this thing just that island smoked me like it beat me into the ground. And then I like came up like a Phoenix, right? Like I, there was one point in time, like I had to pull over and address the blister situation because my feet had turned into like basically full blisters. Like I was walking on an entire blister instead of having a foot. And I had this moment on the trail where I was like, I had just taken off my shoe. I took off my sock. And then I had taped up a blister. So with the sock came the tape and with the tape came that first layer of skin. And my only thought in that moment was like, I was just like, hey, Sid. So like, uh, I don't know if you know this, but you're finding out right now, wearing your hiking boots at your standing desk is not the same as breaking them in. Like, it was the only thing I could think of. And I was just like, wow, yeah, delusional confidence is 100% right here.
0: Let me just march in place. Same. I would have done the same. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. But I'm oh, sure it was, like, when it was hilarious. Happening, it and so wasn't it was hilarious.
1: just like, it was really, really intensely physical. And I did learn two really good lessons on that first trip. Like, I didn't recognize my body in the dressing room when I was trying on the high performance, like hiking apparel. But mm. I did learn on that first trip that I love my body. Because even though I didn't recognize it, the body that I didn't recognize just took me almost all the way across the island. I also didn't finish the first hike. Like there was no way I could have. And also they were saying that the trail Mm -hmm. might've been rained out. And I was just like, well, if there's a chance, (laughs) I'm just going to sit down and be done because I don't want to get hurt. So yeah, Yeah, so I tapped out on the first one, but I love my body. And it reminded me that I could do hard things. Like I mentioned before, I've done a lot of hard stuff physically. I mean, like I've moved all around this country for love and work just because it's fun. And that's what I want to do. Like I've done hard things physically in life and love and otherwise. And that trail was such a beautiful reminder of that.
4: Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter-Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell, Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to circle back to what you were saying about loving your body. Cause I I know that you're, you're just kind of telling it as a, um, like it's a beautiful sentiment. And I know it was much more than that. It wasn't just like one day you woke up or in the dressing room, you just decided that you were going to do it. So tell us about like what, what kind of made you, I mean, or maybe it was, was it just a, a a switch that was flipped or what did that look like? Well, for me in the lead up to this trip, like, so this, Let's
1: like set the stage here, right? Like this is December two thousand sixteen. Let's think about what's going on in the like yeah. world, like politically. Trump was just elected president. There's a lot of stuff going around. Just in general, like the climate of the season is like feminism is cool again, or maybe for the first time ever, or for those of us that have been doing this for a hot Almost, minute, we're like, yeah. oh hi, welcome <laughs> to the party. Um, leading up to that, like whole time of my life, like I had been following. You know, like standard Instagram accounts, but generally, like when I would go scroll through Instagram, I would feel like absolute dog shit about myself. And so, I took a very distinct and deliberate effort, and I went through on a long scroll, and everything that made me feel like trash about myself, I unfollowed or un or muted if it was like just like a temporary thing, like somebody's on vacation and it's triggering me because I'm not. Like I just I made a I made a very distinct point and took deliberate action to make my Instagram feed and my social media feed a place where I could find positivity and inspiration instead of feeling like absolute shit. So Hmm. I started Uh following plus size models. I started following like advocates for body awareness, body positivity, health at every size, because what was happening was I was looking at bodies that didn't look like mine and judging myself against that. But once I introduced different kinds of body and I saw... In fact, that beauty comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors, then I stopped hating my body so much. So before I got on that trail, I was like, I would say, like body neutral, where I didn't hate it, but I didn't love what I had going on. And at Mm -hmm. the end of that first hike, I felt appreciation for what my body was capable of doing. I say at the time, I love my body, but after the second hike is when I really was able to come around and understand what actually loving your body means. Because I it okay I had hated it for so long leading up to that first hike that being neutral felt like love. But after yeah. the second hike, that's when I learned like, oh, on the first hike, that was more of a neutral. The absence of hatred does feel like love in comparison. But that second hike was where I was like, yeah, okay, this is Sydney.
0: This is what I'm about. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. Take it or leave it. That's all you get. I love that you everything you just said. And it's so important. And I just sort of wanted to underscore what you were saying, because I, I think that the the movement, the body positivity movement, um, I had Sonia Renee Taylor on and she said, the body positivity movement is like a nice white lady. She means well, <laughs> but she, sometimes you can't trust her. And uh, and it's I, I think that what it overlooks is so, and so many memes in personal development fail to look at nuance and things like that. And specifically about this one, I think that it's, and I've said this for a long time, it is a huge jump to ask somebody who has grown up hating their body, who has compared themselves to everyone else and does not look like the quintessential American beauty that our culture has created. That they might be in a place of body loathing. They hate their body. To ask them to jump to love your body when a lot of the love your body people are like a standard size four- how the fuck does anyone do that right so it just again it it if you're get to a place of like the win should be to get to a place of neutrality to get to a place of acceptance first then body love you you, you with me on that one uh 100% fists in the air <laughs> yeah yeah. It just, and I, and I too have been guilty of falling, you know, in the very beginning of my personal development career of like touting, love your body. And then, and then I really dove in and I was like, Oh, wait a minute.
3: <laughs> Which is, and that's the thing is
1: like, I don't want to say don't. And I don't want right. to discredit the movement because it's a hundred percent wildly important. We have been prescribing to, and subscribing to this ideal that is like near impossible for most people to meet. But at the same time, it's not, either or it's yes. And like, yes, love your body. And also let's shift the conversation to accommodate for the nuance that makes that so difficult.
0: Right. Well, and you mentioned health at every size, and this is a conversation that you and I had in in my kitchen and where, you know, and I, I, I see hundred percent see both sides. And then when you found yourself in this place where you were overweight and you were, um, not healthy and, also needing to at a place where you accepted your body for what it was, curves and all. And then you got a medical, some medical news. What happened?
1: Yeah. So nine months after that first hike across Helena Island, I was diagnosed with type two diabetes. And in the moment when I was diagnosed, like my first thought was like, well, let's not wreck the car because I was driving. And then my second thought was like, I guess I can't eat bread anymore. Like I didn't know anything about this disease. I didn't know what was happening in my body. I didn't know if I could reverse it. Am I going to be on meds my whole life? But the first thing that my doctor said was like, you know, losing weight is one of the most efficient ways to manage this disease. And what wasn't made clear to me at the time, but what I found out later down the road is where I was in my prognosis in the progression of the disease was we caught it. I'm really young as far as like diabetics go, especially type two, that's usually diagnosed later in life. Um, I was young and I was diagnosed early in the progression of the disease. So in my case, losing weight empowered me and empowered my body to work with a natural amount of insulin insulin that it still produces to manage my blood sugar. Mm -hmm. So as I lost body mass, my body was able to work with what it naturally produces, which means I didn't need to have supplemental insulin and that I hadn't progressed through the disease enough to where I would need to have injectables. So for me, losing weight was a hundred percent part of the treatment plan, which when it comes from a medical place, instead of a vanity place, like I want to be thin for this event, or I'm going to my reunion and I don't want to be fat, or I want to look hot in a bikini, like My attempts leading up to this diagnosis to lose weight had always been rooted in some superficial reason to lose weight, not for my Mm -hmm. health. It was entirely for my appearance and usually trying to make somebody else happy, not myself. So to have the doctor say, yes, here's your, here's a nutrition plan. Here's an exercise plan. Here's some medication to get you started. The priority here is to lose weight. That's the most efficient way to manage this disease. I took that as a challenge. And I was like, listen, I'm a people pleaser. I like earning both <laughs> stars. Doc, <laughs> if you tell me I have diabetes and that losing weight is the way to manage it, challenge accepted, sis. I got this. Mm-hmm. And I crushed it. Like it was the most beautiful switch as far as my mentality around my health and especially around weight loss. Because at that point in time, I was like, yeah, no, I'm healthy at this size. Everything's fine. And then the doctor's like, hey, actually, no, you're not. You have diabetes. So you need to get that together. So Mm -hmm. it was quite a mind bender to be like, oh, I'm comfortable in my skin. I don't care if I weigh 200 plus pounds. I feel good. I'm empowered. I'm worthy of taking up space. All the like mental health stuff that impacts how we feel about our bodies. Then to have the doctor be like, yeah, no, you need to be, you need to be smaller. Like physically you need Mm -hmm. to do that was like, oh, oh, all right. Like it was good because it was serious enough. Diabetes was where it was like, hey, take a good hard look at your life and make some changes. This is an opportunity rather than a burden versus like a really progressive cancer diagnosis or something where that could completely derail my life. And I'd have to go find a place to get treatments and do all this other stuff. Like This was enough of a thing to empower me to make the choices that I need to make that I already know how to make. If we're being honest, I've known how to take care of myself my entire life but it is so easy to be unhealthy in this country. And it's so easy to numb in other ways that are socially acceptable, but unhealthy that this was just like the biggest catalyst for change and the biggest wake up call I've ever had in my life.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. And so I'm not sure if, and I, and I remember your talk and and talking about you got that diagnosis and it's so interesting and I don't know if you agree. It, It sounds like the universe handed you a big fat invitation and it wasn't, I, from where I'm sitting, it doesn't sound like it has really anything to do with your weight or the diabetes. It has everything to do with your mental and emotional healing that happened. And so I'm not sure which came first. Was it the diagnosis and then the trauma healing or the trauma healing and then the diagnosis and weight loss? Or was it kind of all mixed together?
1: It started with the diagnosis, which led to the trauma healing, 100%. Okay. So
0: tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So I've always had a wildly disordered relationship with food, as I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to. What I realized on this second hike, um, as I was training for it, I realized that instead of eating and drinking my feelings, I had been hiking my feelings since I was diagnosed with diabetes. And that felt revolutionary to me because I was given, like you said, it was basically an invitation. I honestly think it was a gift. It was like, Hey, here's this diagnosis, do what you want with it. And PS, if you choose the right path, your whole world will open up and be amazing. Like, right. And I (laughs) with it as you please. Yeah. And so (laughs) what had happened was after I got diagnosed, like I channeled all of my people, pleasing tendencies into managing this disease and being the best diabetes patient my doctor has ever seen. So I cleaned up my diet and actually I don't even like saying diet. I cleaned up my nutrition plan because diets are gross. Um, I got like, this is what a diabetic should be eating in order to manage this disease efficiently. That is my nutrition plan. So I had a new nutrition plan. I had my meds. I had my 30 to 45 minute walk. I did every morning. And there's one more factor that affects your blood sugar as a diabetic and as a human and that's stress. So the first three, I took to those right away. I crushed it. And then the last one is my stress. And I already knew where it was coming from, but I was putting that off as long as I could because my stress was coming from my job. And I was mm-hmm. the breadwinner for our family. I wanted to see if I could do this without having to make serious changes to the way I live my life other than food, diet, exercise, medications, etc. So when I started having physical results, I started losing the weight, which was the goal, but my blood sugar was still elevated. I really actually had to dial in on my stress and see where that was coming from. And that was coming from my job. So at the time I was leading email marketing for NBC I was diagnosed the week before fall premieres, so if you know anything about the entertainment industry or if you watch a favorite show, you know how much we like to ramp up communications around the times that new seasons start, um, and that was my job, and it was very stressful. And so I had looked around. I had tried to find other work at the agency. I had tried to swap accounts. I tried to dial back on my workaholic tendencies as a woman who works <laughs> from home, Um And that didn't ever work out. So I ended up joining my friend's startup thinking if I'm doing work that I care about, then the stress will be worth it. And that was cute too. That didn't work out either. (laughs) So I ended up leaving the startup after 95 days. And I was just like on this training hike when I was realizing that I wasn't so freaked out. Like, why am I not completely losing it right now? By all intents and purposes, I should be like, I should be crying in a corner. I have no idea how we're going to make money. I have no savings to speak of. There's nothing else lined up. And I'm not doing that. And that's when I realized like, oh, thanks to diabetes, my normal coping mechanisms, which for me prior to diabetes was jumping into a pint of & Jerry's for breakfast or drinking a whole bottle of wine to myself every night. Those got taken away when I got diagnosed with diabetes and I replaced those with hiking. And so that felt great. But I wanted to know why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? And that's kind of the question I was seeking to answer on that second hike. And that's where the trauma healing really began.
0: Yes. I always, I love that. I always say, you know, the things that people do to quote unquote, take the edge off, like what would happen if you actually looked at the edge and for some people they'll say like, well, it's stress and Sure. Sometimes people work too much or they have bosses that are assholes or their workload is just too much to manage along with all the other things they have in their life. And a lot of times, in addition to that, it's things that we, and I'm like raising my hand over here. It's things <laughs> that we are pushing down that are seven layers deep that are don't have really anything to do with your work that is causing the edge to feel even worse. So it could be, childhood trauma. It could be a conversation in your relationship that you're not having. It could be resentfulness that you're, that you're feeling like all these things. And it sounds like that's what it was for you. That was some stuff.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing is like the, the work and stuff could be a a cause of it for sure. But, in all reality, it's just exacerbating what's buried beneath. Like the stressors that pile up on top of the trauma that remains unresolved makes it feel like the stressor is the trauma. When nine times out of 10, I would argue that's probably not the case. It's probably just like, this is the thing that's going to make you feel the thing if you don't feel it because you keep numbing.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I love, you have a term for that and you call it your trauma pack. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. So on the second hike, um, With this mindset
1: of, you know, why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? I also wanted to know what would be possible if the hike itself wasn't the hard part, because I had done this hike before, and I did it 70 pounds heavier in the worst shape of my life, rolling off the couch and onto the trail. If I could do that much work physically in that physical condition, what would be possible now that I'm lighter, that I've been training, that I have the right equipment, that I've broken my shoes? Like, there's all all these barriers that are no longer in my way. Combined with this desire to answer, like, why did my why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? So, over the course of this hike, I had these little like indicators that this wasn't just a physical journey. So, on the first trip, about an hour and a half, two hours into it, I started to get my first blister. And on the second trip, I had my app that tracks my distance. So, as I'm walking through the backcountry of Catalina Island, I'm like, oh yeah, I think this is where I got my first blister. Like, I'm looking around having a moment. And I pull out my app to see how far I'm going. And I had been going a quarter mile on the trail. Wow. And I was like, okay, check box number one. I'm a quarter mile in and I feel great. No blisters. Okay. Like what if the hike itself isn't the hard part? Check. And then when we get to the first like pause point on the first day, um, I realized that my blood sugar was perfect. Like it was my first backpacking trip since I got diagnosed with diabetes. I checked my blood sugar. It's perfect. Check another box. The physical part is not the only hard journey. And I went, I sat on this bench because I realized I was like running around this mid midway point without a shirt on. And like, as a cheerleader, a gymnast, team sports person, you might assume that I roll around without a shirt on at all times, but that's just not the case. Like my stomach is always forever definitely covered up because it's the one part of my body that I'm always self-conscious about no matter what it looks like. But on this campground or at this little like playground in the middle of nowhere on this island, I was running around without my shirt on. I was like, why? And I realized mm-hmm. like I had been crying so much <laughs> since like realizing that I was a quarter mile in and no blisters and like checking that box to sitting on this bench, having just checked my blood sugar and seeing that my blood sugar levels are perfect, when just two weeks prior, they were insane because of the amount of stress that I was working through at the startup. I was like, why? Like, why was I crying so much? Well, I mentioned at the beginning in 2014 that I lost a bunch of people. And that's kind of what led me to the trail the first time in 2016. But over the four years that I was skydiving, 23 of my friends died. And on the trail the second time, and that's June of last year, 2018, that's, When I was able to process that trauma for the first time So that Mm -hmm. was the first piece of trauma that I pulled out of that backpack where I was like Okay, who are these people? What do they mean to me? How can I keep their memories alive? What's my favorite memory of them on this planet? And like how can I make sure that their legacy continues, you know beyond this moment? And I realized like oh as i'm unpacking this really heavy stuff like that was a lot of heavy stuff I'm crying it out. I got snot all over the trail I'm leaving all the heavy stuff behind and just letting the trail take it And what I take with me is the happiness and the memories and the light stuff. So that process continued three or four more times across the island, dealing with different parts of my being and my existence. Like that was some heavy stuff, dealing with the trauma. The next day I was reclaiming my shine. So all the parts of my body or personality that people told me I needed to dull down or make less obvious to people because mm-hmm. it's intimidating to be a woman who takes up space in her presence Taking and for being, yeah. and then the last one, like on one of the last days that led up to like the biggest realization of all, I had gone through this total, just excavation of anything. My inner critic wanted to say while I was going up this climb, cause it was one of the hardest climbs on the Island. And as I was doing it, I was feeling a lot of physical resistance, but more than that, a lot of emotional resistance. So all of those like nasty negative things that your inner critic says, is just like on loop all the time. I actually Mm -hmm. like slowed down, didn't take those as truth, examined them, released them and then like hyped myself back up to fully eradicate those things from my inner dialogue. And by the time that I got to the top of that really high climb where I'm going through this process, I felt like an astronaut getting ready to blast off Mm in outer space. Like I felt on fire and i i had felt that feeling before and it was familiar but this time it was different like i'm older now so but i know that i felt this like when was the last time that i felt this confident in the direction my life was going even when i shouldn't because at this point in time i don't have anything else lined up like i'm just walking across this island with no job to go back to but i'm oddly Mm -hmm. confident um when was the last time i felt this good in my body when was the last time i felt this supported by the people around me And it was on my way down into the last campsite on this island that I realized that the last time I felt this good in my body, in my life, and supported by the people around me was right before I was raped 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I wasn't scared. I didn't feel sad. I felt free because now out of nowhere, I have context for all the things that had felt chaotic in my mind and body since the assault, all of the decisions that I had made that were typically uncharacteristic of the woman I was before I was raped. Um, just all kinds of context for like the trauma and what it had done to my life and how I had moved through it the best I could, because I didn't get help after the assault. That was the other thing was like, I kept that to myself for 11 years and carried it with no assistance from anybody else. Cause I was scared and I was ashamed and I thought girls like me don't get raped. So I swore I'd take it to the grave. And to be honest mm-hmm. with you, I almost did take it to the grave a couple times
4: Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.
3: No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.
0: This is one of the parts of your story that really struck me, not so much that you were sexually assaulted. I know that's more common than I wish that it was, Um, but it was that you didn't tell a single soul, not a best friend, not anyone. And, and, you know, maybe it's because I'm just an overshare <laughs> like by nature. And I just, you know, when, when it happened to me, I told, I think a couple of my friends. So it, it really struck me that you, that you walked into that accepting that you were taking it to your grave. Yeah. There was, it sounds to me there was so much shame around it, there was tons of shame around it. And
1: that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because for me, my understanding of sexual assault was very narrow up until up through the point where I was assaulted. And even years later, which is why I continued to hold it to myself because for the longest time, I didn't believe that what happened to me was rape. Yeah, I had declined the night before I woke up with somebody I knew on top of me against my will. And Mm. because it wasn't done by a stranger in an alley with a gun to my head, like everything you see in movies and TV that you think of, like it's a very clear picture of what rape is, violent rape. Like I didn't know that acquaintance rape was a thing. So I thought, Mm -hmm. well, maybe I just wasn't convincing enough with my no last night, or maybe like Cinderella, your consent expires at midnight and you have to like re-up it at midnight 01 or whatever, you know, like I had, I had made up so many stories as to why I deserved it or why I, Or why it happened, or how it wasn't what I thought it was for so long. Like the morning that it happened, I just laid there and pretended like I was asleep. Frankly, I had no other means to defend myself. I didn't think that I could like fight him off, and I didn't want to die because I didn't know if that was a thing. Because, like, the other side of understanding that what happened to me was rape was like, because it wasn't so obviously violent in the way it had been depicted to me leading up to that point, I also thought, well, girls that fight back, like they could get killed and I, I don't right. want to die. So I just laid mm-hmm. there and let it happen. And then I, you know, I, I lived through it and then I went home and I showered and for a long time, and I just swore that I'd take it to the grave. Cause I figured like a girls like me don't get raped and B are you even sure that was raped' Cause like, you know, you know, the guy and there wasn't a weapon. So, you know, maybe it's just one of those things where you didn't like it. And it's like, no, like that was definitely fucking assault. <laughs> like there's no mm-hmm. question whatsoever um but for the longest time like it wasn't until i started hearing more stories from more friends who were capable of talking about it who were comfortable sharing those details with me where i was like oh my god like my friend just came to me about something that happened to her and that's literally what happened to me and she's saying yeah. she was raped so was i raped and then i like go and i look up other things and i'm like oh my god yeah like this is and for this entire time i've been slut shaming myself into silence because I figured that I wanted it because it wasn't so violent. So to carry that by myself was so, 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 so hard. And like my life was impacted in so many ways that I just came to realize between this hike last year and even today, like I'm still uncovering things about myself and like remembering things that happened while I was in a state of trauma, like different reactions I had, different decisions I made, it's just so interesting to see how unresolved trauma can impact your life physically, emotionally, spiritually, in your relationships, in your relationship with yourself too. It's, it's, it's wild.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that story in, in more detail. Um, I, I did a podcast episode with our mutual friend, Kate Anthony, and I will link to it in the show notes where I talk about my assault, which sounds very similar to yours. And, and tell me if this was your experience, because when I, I told the story on the podcast, and part of why i couldn't define it as rape is because i had a boyfriend at the time and i convinced myself that i was a shitty human being for what i had let happen and that was part of the reason where i wouldn't define it as that and carried it and carried it and carried it although i did tell a couple of friends that it had happened but for in my experience it was the moment that i admitted that it was at least a sexual assault was the moment of a huge release for me and also I believe where the healing process started it wasn't that I was healed when I admitted that to myself and others it was it just started the process do you think that that was the same for you yes and that's a uh, interesting
1: I'm actually I'm excited to hear one I love Kate and two uh, like I it sounds weird to say I'm excited to hear about your assault but I think that there's always something. (laughs) I understand. I can I can learn stuff about myself and my processing and my experiences by hearing other people's stories. And what was interesting for me is that I didn't have a boyfriend at the time, but I started dating somebody. Like I was in the process of like I have a crush on someone. Maybe this could be dating. And after the assault, we did start dating. And I was unfortunate enough to contract HPV from my rapist, which required Mm -hmm. me to have a leap procedure to remove precancerous cells from my cervix. And so when my boyfriend, new boyfriend at the time found out about that, he thought I was dirty. He thought I was a slut. He thought that I was disgusting. How could I not tell him that I have a sexually transmitted disease? What kind of trashy human does that? Da da, da da And I was so ashamed because of his reaction to that. I was like, if that's how he's responding to me having this disease and needing to be treated in this way, how would he feel if he knew that I was raped? So I told him that I hooked up with a dude from work. Mm-hmm. And that I, and you know, and I'm so, so sorry. And I like, and I went on to apologize endlessly, profusely, because it was like my problem and my fault. And I'm a horrible, you know, deceitful, deceiving human being for not telling him or whatever. But like, I didn't even know that that was a thing until it was when I went to go get my pap smear. and My doctor was like, hey, PS, you have HPV. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's fun. Cause like, we're all the majority of humans are silent carriers in one way or another. And so I didn't even know that I had it until I did. And then I needed medical treatment. So for me, a lot of, and that just compounded the shame, right? Because like if I already knew that I didn't feel safe telling my family or my friends or anybody after the assault, didn't go to the hospital, didn't go to the police, then the first person who's directly impacted by my assault other than me is the boy that I'm dating at the time. And he tells me that I'm a disgusting human for having a sexually transmitted disease. You bet your mouth I'm gonna keep or you bet your buns I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. Like this wow. is something that I am taking because if I was so flawed in that moment, how the fuck was I ever gonna find another man that could love me and spend the rest of my life with me and all that stuff if I couldn't be seen for what happened and if I could couldn't even admit that what happened to me was rape? I I like I I further damaged myself by saying that it wasn't in that moment.
0: Uh, yeah, I I had the same experience that the yes the furthering of the the pain and the hurt and just for everyone listening who wants to hear the story in more detail and get all of your Good tools. Your book is Hiking My Feelings, Stepping Into the Healing Power of Nature. And they can find it at hikingmyfeelings.com. I do have one more question for you. And I know that there's a lot of people listening who have their own trauma. And they could be in various places of it. They could be at a place where they have told no one about it, where they haven't dealt with it at all. They could be at a place where they have talked to a therapist or someone they trust. And they they could be at a place I know some people who have been my clients or in my group programs have even done a specific trauma therapy that's been helpful for them. So you as someone, as a survivor of trauma and someone who has taken this route, I'm sure there's been other ways that you have, have helped your trauma, but can you tell us one step survivors of trauma can take to start the healing process?
1: I think the most important step is to have the conversation with yourself because I feel like regardless of whether or not your trauma is sexual assault, maybe it's divorce, maybe you're a survivor of a gun violence incident, maybe you have a chronic illness or a terminal illness or you've been in a car accident or you've been bullied or you're the victim of any of the phobias or isms, like there is trauma everywhere. And my, this metaphor of having this backpack that's full of our trauma, I think is a lovely place to start. So like if you're walking around life and you're like, man, something just feels really heavy, like consider for a moment that you have this backpack on that you don't even know you've been wearing. Um, the The process to unpack it can be, hard it can be long and it can be lonely but i think the first step is to realize like darn near everybody on this planet has survived some kind of trauma so start having the conversation with yourself like do you have this backpack on and have you looked in it and if you haven't if you didn't even know you had it on take it off for a second and see how that feels because it's really nice Mm -hmm. to not be walking around with all of this stuff if even if it's just temporary just like set it aside Go have a really lovely day for yourself and like feel what life is like without this backpack on. And then when you're ready, come back and take a look. And I would highly recommend looking at that backpack with somebody that you trust, not by yourself, if at all possible. Um, But ultimately, at the end of the day, if you feel like you've been through something and you've been silencing yourself like I did, I will say this. The only people that benefit from our silence are the criminals that perpetrate this violence against our bodies period, full stop. Nobody else benefits from us keeping this to ourselves.
0: A hundred percent. I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So tell everyone, yes, they go to hikingmyfeelings.com to grab your book and where are you going in the world cuz you're on tour and people should go if you're there, if you're in their town i went to go see you at the REI in greensboro last month and so where are you going to be the rest of december and into january or where where can people go to find you so
1: for december and january we're going to be mostly in southern california so we're once we start getting our events for those months booked. Um, you can always stay up to date with what we've got going on and when we're coming to a town near you at slash events. That's where we keep our tour schedule, and that will include book tour stops, that includes our retreats for next year, that includes our big, huge hike around Chicago um, in May, June of next year. So there's all kinds of fun ways that you can get involved to either see the story in person, come to a book signing, or join us on the trail for a hike, because that's ultimately our biggest goal is to encourage as many people as possible to get off the couch and get outside. And the easiest way to stay um, up to date with that is on our website at hikingmyfeelings.com slash events.
0: Yay. I'm just, I'm so excited for you. I know I followed your journey over the last 10 years now and it's definitely taken some twists and turns and it's just, it's really beautiful to watch a woman step into her own power. And I will tell you, for everyone listening, I can almost guarantee it's going to be messy. Like it's not, (laughs) there's
1: nothing pretty about it. And that's the thing is like, I think the second that I realized that it wasn't going to be this like picture perfect healing process Instagrammable, was, yeah, and like, <laughs> and also that this shit doesn't happen overnight. Like I've been on this particular chapter of this healing journey since 2015. Like in yeah. 2015, I signed up for a 90 day program and I was like, this is going to solve all my problems. No, right. like I had, in fact, I had to like unfuck myself from the work I did in that program, but ultimately like give yourself permission to understand that not only Is this not going to be quick? In fact, it will take probably your entire life. And that's the entire point of being human is to like, learn how to do this, see how things affect us, make changes where we can make changes and be the best humans we possibly can be. Because at the end of the day, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what kind of titles you get at work. It doesn't matter where you live, what kind of car you drive. Like none of that matters. Like if you can go and be the best version of yourself and that work is Entirely individualistic, and sometimes you have to do it by yourself for yourself, then you can show up in community authentically, and then that's where that ripple effect comes in and I truly believe that that's how we save the world is by doing the work on ourselves to be our best selves so we mm-hmm. can show up in that way in love, in life, in our families, at work in our communities, and then impact everybody around us from that place
0: a thousand percent. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story and for doing the work that you do in the world. And on social media, you're at feelings, correct? That is correct. HikingMyFeelings.com. Everybody go out and grab the book or and or go see Sydney at one of her speaking events. And most of them are free, right? The ones at REI? Correct. They are free unless otherwise noted. Yes. Okay. And I love the hike around Chicago. That one's going to be awesome. If you're in that area, I highly recommend it. And it's not going to be in January. So that's good. <laughs> I've been to <laughs> right. Chicago in January. <laughs> yeah. It'll be like the perfect time. Good. Thank you so much for being here. And people listening, thank you so much for your time. I know how valuable that is. And I so appreciate that you spend it here with me every week along with my guests. And until next time, everyone, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.